This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to the Media Rumble Sessions. Thank you, Ras, for really setting the tone uh, of this conversation. Uh, even for people who aren't as one scientist, who aren't tracking climate change, I think the, the uh, terrible weather events of the last one year have brought into perspective the fact that this is no longer something we can turn a blind eye to. Uh, there was also the UN report on climate change 2021 that painted a fairly grim picture about the role that each of us needs to play in mobilizing support, mobilizing a storm, as pointed out, in getting our countries and our governments respectively uh, to act upon it. Uh, our specific conversation, though, uh, talking about how Europe and India can partner in climate change uh, mitigation is a really important conversation, given also the fact that we have uh, the uh, COP26 coming up a little later. My first question to my panelists, and I'd like to begin right away to, if, if I may start with uh, Christopher Beaton. India is now under pressure to declare a zero emission uh, deadline, which India has not done yet. There are some views within India that believes that as a developing country, we shouldn't have to declare a deadline right away. Do you think there is room at all for those arguments anymore? Um, in light of what we know, uh, what the scientists are telling us this year, or do you think that it's now time for all countries to put hands on deck and make the tough decisions that need to be made? Thanks, I think it's a great question. Um, I think that we need two types of ambition from um, this year's COP. So one is we need to see kind of evidence-based ambition about trying not to exceed 1.5 degrees. Uh, and so I think absolutely there is kind of huge um, kind of uh, pressure behind all countries to, to uh, kind of uh, seriously consider whether or not it's feasible for them to uh, set a deadline for net zero. Um, and also to think about what this means in terms of really urgent near-term uh, change. Um, but I think also the other type of ambition we need is socially responsible change. And I think this is um, I think kind of what India has taken a stand on uh, internationally and said, you know, we, we don't want to sign up to a commitment if we're not convinced that we can do it in a way that will uh, protect the most vulnerable. Uh, and um, also in terms of its economic impacts kind of won't flow through on, on negative impacts to, to other consumers. So I think kind of picking up on, on uh, Alias's point um, in his introductory remarks um, about the importance of effective exchange on know-how. You know, I work for an NGO and I think about collaboration between uh, India and uh, the EU with NGOs. I think a huge part of what we're trying to do is knowledge production. Um, I think we're trying to show that, in fact, you can um, make these changes in a way which uh, is socially responsible, and then also to kind of share that information with wide ranges of stakeholders to build up their confidence. So um, I don't think it's um, my place to say whether this COP is going to be the COP where, where it's the right choice for India or not. But I think that's where we are. And I think that's the, the tension. So um, yeah, you know, very hopeful um, that we might see um, kind of uh, statements on this in the, the next months. But also, I think it really relies on this confidence that we can do it in a socially responsible way. Taking the same question to the rest of the panelists as well, Shikha Basin, uh, research on climate change mitigation policies. Uh, Ms. Basin, do you believe that, uh, you know, India is doing enough at this point? Um, and is there, is there enough, uh, you know, scientific intelligence that we're picking up or we're learning from the rest of the world in order to be able to maybe leapfrog some of the steps that the other countries uh, took so we can get there a little faster? 
Um, so I like how you phrase this question, Faye, especially in, in terms of can we get there faster? Um, given where we are today, where you know climate change has sort of grown from being a serious challenge to a full-blown global emergency, um, I think India is taking um, enough amount of sort of responsive steps to make sure that we get there faster than everybody else. Um, and to put that into perspective, um, the EU, for instance, uh, peaked its emissions back in 1979. And um, even its 2050 target, it is going to take more than 70 years between its peaking year and to get to net zero. It's the same story for UK, who is the COP presidency this year. And it's a similar story that you're going to see unfolding in the US, in Japan, and all other developed countries. Um, a second thing that we need to think about is what is their per capita emissions profile? And because India has always given a lot of flack for this sort of per capita emissions profile, I also want to add the per capita income amount, right, for each of these countries to be able to get there. Um, now, if you want to call it a leapfrog, you can, but to me, it seems like a pretty straightforward transition to a decarbonization pathway. India, on the other hand, even if we do decide to uh, be super unambitious, if I can call it that, and say that by the end of the century, we'll get to a net zero, we would still be doing it faster than any of these developed economies. So I just want to sort of put this into perspective, given the political narrative that, um, you know, the world is talking about, uh, and how net zero seems to have uh, become the center of attention when we think about climate action. Um, I think we need to be realistic and think about what are the actions that are being front-loaded, how much of the responsibility or the promises that were made before have actually been met, whether that's about emissions reduction, it's about technology cooperation, or it's about what's being uh, considered to be climate finance and how much of that has been met. met. And uh, I'd be happy to sort of uh, delve into all of these aspects more as we go along. Uh, so you did say, of course, that, uh, that you know, net zero emissions uh, is becoming the focus. Uh, there, there is, of course, the other question of the countries that emit the most carbon dioxide, I mean, are those the countries that we need to be focusing on? In your opinion, uh, which route should the world be taking? I think it, I don't think we're at a point where we should only be focusing on a subset of countries. I don't believe that uh, India is not being ambitious and should not be achieving more as we go along, just as all other countries, because the reality of the world has significantly shifted. But that is also what the Paris Agreement actually allows for countries to do, right? Like commit to what it is that you have committed to, but then please make sure that you get this, you get there. Because in all of the previous climate agreements that we've had within the UNFCCC, uh, whether it's the Doha Amendment to the Kyoto Protocol or the original Kyoto Protocol, um, we are so far behind from what was set out to be achieved in terms of just the sheer emissions allowance uh, and where we've got to. Um, and it is a really critical moment politically for us to be able to take stock of what was supposed to have happened by 2020 and where we're at in 2021 and how as a you know global community of 198 countries do we intend to get there. So are we front-loading the commitments that have not been met to make sure that we're getting there. And in the meantime, what is everybody else doing uh, you know, to, to get all hands on deck, whether it is in terms of financing solutions, uh, identifying you know, over the horizon technologies, uh, developing actual collaborative uh, partnerships and not just um, you know, civil society engagements. You know, what are we actually doing as states and as non-state actors to get there? 
Yes, in fact, and that brings me to my next question, and I'll take this question to Siddharth Singh. Uh, for our audience members who don't know, Siddharth wrote a book uh, called The Great Small of India. Um, it's, you know, the, the, the issues that Delhi and many North Indian cities face towards the winter of every year, something that many journalists have spent time and energy on, as have I. Uh, and we found ourselves going around in circles and coming back to the fact that our politics stands in the way. Uh, we have various parties that refuse to sit down on, on the state level and have a conversation on how to solve for these problems. Uh, so that's saying there is obviously the international conversations that will take place, the national level or the federal level conversations that will take place. But how important is local government? city level government, state level government in each of these things as well. Uh, will they only pick up their cue from the federal government or is there a responsibility here on the city level to do more? Uh, thanks, Faye. I mean, firstly, it's it's great to be amongst all of you. And I think, uh, you know, this is a very timely and important conversation. Uh, you know, so I'd like to, you know, kind of take a step back first, you know, before we get to what cities and, and you know, municipalities should be doing, uh, I'd like to just set the context a little bit better because I think uh, the this problem of, of air pollution is very local in nature, but it, it it's not, uh, it does not operate in a way. It's, it's a function of the technological choices, the policies and a lot of other things. And I think while air pollution and climate change are distinct problems, uh, there's a significant overlap in, in you know, how we got here on both fronts. So I'll just very quickly kind of you know, uh, set the context on climate change and come to, to air pollution. I think uh, it's, it's very important to remember that you know, this climate crisis is not a new problem. And it's also not one that's been created by you know, India primarily. Right? But having said that, it does not mean that India should not act and should not be a party to the solutions. And you know, when you act on uh, air pollution, some of our latest studies have shown uh, sorry, when you act on, uh, on greenhouse gas emissions, it also has an impact on air pollutant levels. So it, it, in a way, it is a, uh, you could have a related and, and a, I think joint approach to both these problems. Right? So, so what do I mean when I say that climate change is neither a new problem nor one created you know, by India primarily? So firstly, greenhouse gas emissions don't get reset every year. It's, a, uh, it's very easy to say that India is the third or the fourth largest emitter in the world, but, uh, but you know, it's, uh, the year itself is an artificial construct. The emissions in, in the atmosphere have actually been around for decades, if not a century and over. So, so we need to understand what cumulative emissions mean and therefore you know, how the problem, uh, how we got to the stage that we are at currently. Right. Secondly, it's it's people who pollute, not countries. And of course, countries are formed of people. But the point is that not only today, but even in the year 2040 or the year 2050, the per capita emissions of of when an average Indian will be less than the global average. So it's not just today, but also in the future. And I think it's important to therefore remember we need action, you know, at a global level. Uh, you know, uh, also that the the carbon intensive pathway is what led the advanced economies to get to where they are. And, and, you know, therefore, you can't fault a country like India for also pursuing one which is very coal intensive, or at least historically has been so. This, of course, is also the reason why India continues to be a high air polluter for our, you know, uh, our, our more local and domestic kind of experiences of the environment. But like I said, having said that, it doesn't mean that India should not be a party to the solution because Firstly, climate change impacts India and Indians, and India is one of the most vulnerable countries, you know, on, on this front. Uh, importantly, as, as you kind of brought up, 
air pollution is a local problem so while we can blame the whole world and history and everything else for for you know all of those you know historical emissions on the greenhouse gas emissions front air pollution is impacting us today and now and you know a million people dying every single year is is uh, honestly very hard to even imagine you know the scale of of the crisis and the and the health impacts on the people is is indeed unimaginable and and uh, you know and a problem that will feed in onto the air pollution front as well as on on the climate change front is where india's headed over the next 20 years or or beyond in fact you know our uh, one of our latest studies uh, we estimated that india will be adding the equivalent of 13 mumbais in terms of population to india's urban population over the next two decades right so 13 new mumbais and these are mumbais that are consuming energy that are polluting that are you know buying vehicles that are building homes in fact 60% of the buildings that will exist in the year 2040 have not yet been constructed so look around you look at the buildings and just imagine more than double that will will you know appear in the next 20 years similarly india's vehicle stock is expected to double so we'll have more cars more motorcycles we'll expect a lot more emissions of course through all of this act all of all of these activities now at the global front you know thanks to the kyoto protocols and the paris agreements of the world's we have managed to finally get some momentum going. We have finally managed to get some agreements going across different countries of what needs to be done. I really feel just like the Paris Agreement in the case of air pollution in India, we do need an equivalent of something like a Patiala Agreement of sorts, where, like you said, the municipal corporations, the cities, all of us need to bring these stakeholders onto the table, make them talk about what they, they can achieve on their respective fronts and therefore you know, push them to, or, or rather make it binding for them to achieve it. That's why, I mean, the lack of such a, such an agreement across different agencies is the reason why we have this, you know, debate uh, every year where we just end up passing the buck from one institution to the other. And I think it's, it's high time we move beyond that, learn from the international experience and use that in the Indian context as well. Uh, bringing in uh, Bello uh, as well, uh, talking about what we can right now learn from the West, from the EU, and how we can uh, collaborate in order uh, to mitigate climate change. Um, Lou? Hi, thank you for having me today. Um, so I think I would almost uh, flip the question and say what the non-Western world can teach um, the Western world, so Europe or the US, in terms of uh, you know, dealing with climate change. Um, these are two different worlds, and I think they start from two different places. For example, the debate that we're touching on before, the net zero. Net zero is something, is a target that sounds really, sounds really good, and like people can understand it, and you know, it's visually appealing, um, but also works or sort of works for economies that have already peaked their emissions and they're already industrialized, and so the pathway they have to take. It's just towards that reduction and have to, you know, change their infrastructure and their processes to reduce their emission. And while this can be very challenging, um, it's a more direct pathway to a certain endpoint. Uh, for countries like India or the whole developing world, countries in Africa and elsewhere, um, it's difficult to even consider the possibility of setting a target like that because it would be a very abstract concept that doesn't really allow for a series of concrete objectives within you know, the final goal. So for example, India has 
developments and the health sectors that to date emit much more than other sectors. So heavy industries and building construction, um, Siddharth was mentioning that the country will add 13 human bodies in a short time frame. So all of these uh, new construction and new material will bring a lot of emissions. Um, and so this is a challenge that is very different in nature. And I think why I say I think it's Europe that should learn from India and other countries is that because the measures that um, Europe is implementing, um, dealing with uh, the international community and not just domestically, doesn't really serve the needs of the international community. I'm thinking, for example, the um, one classic example, the carbon tax they will apply to import export and you know will have an impact on trade um, um, and could affect for example exports uh, from india into um, the eu of materials like steel and other things um, india will have to pay more because um, it has a carbon intensive uh, manufacturing process and it's obviously instead of helping india get rid of its you know, excess emission in these processes will become a more costly um, a more costly process and make it much more difficult to re-decarbonize because it would add financial problems to the decarbonization challenge. So I think it really passed time that the Western economies like the EU uh, or the US take a more holistic perspective and recognize that the climate challenge is very different and pass out very differently um, in various parts of the world. And only then, you know, sitting together at the table, but really recognizing that the starting points are different, although ultimately the end point uh, will be the same, then you'll be able to create policies that have a positive influence everywhere in the world. Um, and not just, you know, serve a developed country view of, you know, where the climate conversation should go. I also want to ask you now that I have you, um, and uh, again, for our audience members who don't know, um, you just won uh, the 2021 winner of the UK Freelance Writing Awards for Science and Health uh, category. Congratulations on that. Uh, one of the things we must talk about, because this is media rumble, is uh, the way the media deals with climate change, the language that it's used. Uh, is it making enough of a dent? Is there something that, that the media should be doing differently in India and overseas uh, to be able to communicate the level of crisis that we're currently at? Hmm. Um, yeah, this is a question. I think is a great question that every journalist asks themselves and like are asked. Um, and I'm not sure there is a you know a clear answer, but the um, what I'm seeing, particularly now that climate is becoming more and more mainstream. Um, is a kind of um, dichotomy between um, people teaching more, like journalists and um, experts teaching more science, which can be a little dry, and journalists teaching solutions. Um, so, for example, you know, electric cars can be the solution to city pollution. Um, and this, I would say, neither of this kind of works because if you only teach solutions, you fail to grasp the scope of the problem. If, if it was that easy to electrify everything and solve climate change, we would have done it already. Clearly, it's not that easy. Um, and on the other hand, if you teach the science alone or you communicate very dry messages, well, people are not going to listen to you. 
So I think um, the challenge going forward would be more and more to offer that human dimension uh, to the problem, but also never, never focusing on that alone. Um, so really, it's, a, it's an unprecedented effort of literacy where we're teaching um, our citizens to learn about what climate change is and the basic science of climate change and, you know, what technical knowledge they need to unpack every new story going forward. Um, and climate change, I mean, it's, it's been around, obviously, for decades and decades, but I do feel it's only now that it's starting to be on the mind of people at an unprecedented scale. Like when I started um, working on climate change, um, it was considered a very niche beat and people were not interested. They didn't even know what it was. Even among my friends and family, they were like, oh, this is weird, you know, you do you. Um, whereas now it's everyone talks about it, everyone wants to know about it. So I think it, I think it really changed changes um, onto this, this effort of climate literacy that we all have to be part of. Right, um, same question to the other panelists as well, Christopher Beaton, coming back to you um, on the reporting on, on climate change, the communication, the language that's used, the sense of urgency uh, that's argued in, uh, in the pieces that uh, you know, covers uh, climate change as well. Do you think that we ought to be doing more across the world and in India? Yes. <laughs> I think there's a lot that more that can be done. Um, uh, and I think that's part of the challenge, obviously, because it's almost, you, you, you know, no matter what you do, there's there's always more that could be done. I think one thing I'd add to Lou's comment, which I very much agree with, is, um, you know, she talked a lot about literacy. I think also maybe um, kind of just bringing out voices and representing voices as well. I think that's a, an area that needs a lot of work. Um, I was... Um, uh, participating in a, a recent webinar from the, um, the Global Commission for People-Centered Energy Transition. Um, and a theme that came up there, um, which I cannot emphasize enough, is I think that people need to be included in the change that's coming. Um, I think when we look at the not just the scale of change, but the pace of change that's coming, it's really going to be very big. And um, I think we've already seen with COVID-19, for example, how these very complicated technical scientific issues really uh, are highly problematic uh, when it comes to um, kind of interacting with people's everyday lives. Um, I think that particularly with climate change and with energy, there's a lot of engineers who work on energy. Uh, people have a very technocratic approach to change. They like predicting how people are going to behave or, you know, mapping out what they think. Um, and often they skip talking to them, uh, you know, bringing them to around the table, being among the decision makers. Um, I think that there's a lot of really interesting work that's been happening around just transition in Europe, um, around coal phase outs. Um, which, um, you know, may look very, very different in other parts of the world, but this essential step of, of kind of bringing out the voices of affected people and including them um, in change-making processes is something where I think media has a, a huge role to play. So, um, yes, we can do more, and that would be a, an area that I'd highlight in particular. I, I happen to agree with you, Shika um, is there Is there perhaps a need, uh, especially in India, to be able to communicate the crisis in multiple languages in an accessible way, in a way that doesn't seem um, to alienate most of the people who need to know about it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think uh, 
it's not just the responsibility of uh, of media anymore. You know, I think uh, it's really about also civil society, think tanks, like recognizing what role translations can play, recognizing, uh, you know, different kinds of communication uh, collaterals almost, right? So if, if emails are not the way to go and if like, a, you know, limited character tweet is not going to get you there, um, you know, can we come up with cartoons? Can we actually create like video explainers that talk about what net zero is, right? That talk about what the Paris Agreement is. And can this not be translated and sort of like sent on, uh, you know, WhatsApps to everybody because everybody is hungry for like clickbait today, right? So I think we all need to sort of bridge that gap between science as one part of it, the solutions as another part of it, but really the humanizing aspect of how it's affecting of various and millions of faces in India every single day, right? So what is that story of, uh, you know, a farmer in Kerala who has a solar panel on his roof? And what is the story of, you know, a, a girl who finds her college independence and security in Delhi through an electric scooter, you know, that she can drive around in? I think these are the sort of stories and solutions that we need to look at, but then also recognize the critical role that these technologies are going to play in the GDP of our country, you know, and, and give birth to an entirely new set of entrepreneurs? Are we actually being able to communicate all of these as opportunities, um, you know, to people who may or may not care about climate change, but are definitely getting impacted by it? Absolutely. Um, and I'm just going to bring in Siddharth for the same thing right now. Like I said, you know, we, we do, did talk about the fact that, uh, you know, that many problems our city level, uh, that a lot of the pollution happens on the city level. Is there perhaps a need for city level communication? Because the solutions are also sometimes uh, micro. The solutions are also neighborhood driven, um, you know, in industry or factory driven or agriculture crop driven. Is there a need to break it down to that level? And are we doing enough of that? Uh, no, not at all. I don't think we're doing enough of that at all. I think, uh, you know, one of the first few kind of questions that led me to start researching on air pollution a few years ago was the statistic that I read of, you know, a million or so people dying every single year. And my question was that if a million people are dying, then where are they? You know, where are the faces? Where are the stories? Uh, air pollution is an abstract concept. Sure, you can experience it if you were in Delhi towards the end of the year. And I'm, by the way, just, I mean, on an aside, it's, it's, a, it's a shame almost that we talk about pollution only in that smog season and not the rest of the year. So there's no time for, you know, people to actually drive momentum towards change when you actually need to be working on it rather than just, you know, when the crisis has, has kind of hit you. But yeah, I mean, coming back to the question, I think uh, unless we're able to tell the human stories behind the crisis, it will not resonate with the people. It's not enough to say that, you know, PM 2.5 levels or whatever, or, you know, uh, I think to most people saying that, a two degree rise in you know, te global temperatures over so and so, so many years uh, is a problem. A lot of people don't understand what that means. You know, two degrees doesn't seem much because there's much more than a two degree variance in the daily temperature on any given day in most places, right? But what does that two degrees actually mean to the people, yes. societies? I think that is something that's not been appropriately you know, communicated at a city level or at a level of the neighborhood, like you said, in a way that we can identify with the stories. And I think that's something that we need to work on. I think, uh, you know, one of the things that um, I found interesting specifically because India is such a massively agriculture-driven country, um, we grow rice in South India, 
where the stubble doesn't need to be burned. We grow rice again in the north where the stubble is burned once a year, which causes a, a tremendous problem of, of air pollution. So um, solutions that way also on sustainable agriculture, on um, you know what, whatever industry or, or crop we're growing and how it can fit into the larger sustainable growth uh, goals of our country. Um, is that to is that something that is driven down to federal government, state government, uh, you know, local government? How does that come in? No, so I mean, firstly, it's it's a you know pan India issue in the sense that air pollution in Punjab doesn't just stay in Punjab; it will also, I mean, air pollution knows no boundaries, right? So it will it will flow to the whole uh, you know northern half of our subcontinent, which is what which is where the problem is really is. I think you know, in especially when it comes down to the reportage of such issues. We make it seem like it's an urban problem. The problem is not that this stubble burning in Punjab and Haryana and elsewhere, and that that smoke is coming to Delhi. You know, this is impacting rural Indians as much. In fact, seventy percent of all deaths that happen due to air pollution happen in rural India. Right. So we can't ignore that. We cannot ignore the fact that it's it's a problem that that really is affecting every aspect of our society. And I think, therefore, you know, uh, solutions also need to percolate down to that level you know if if the communication did make it seem them versus us i think that would be uh, you know a, a major win in terms of how we're able to address the issue it's not that the farmers who are doing it are doing so because you know they derive some sort of pleasure out of it they have no choice in fact there there are laws that kind of make it very difficult for them to to do it any other way you know, just providing subsidies or incentives to stop trouble burning is not enough. You need to take away the incentives that make them make it do it in the first place. And I think those kind of solutions, while there is a national nature to it, eventually comes down to how local administrations are able to deal with it. We have a lot of questions coming in from our audience and I'd like to take those questions. Uh, there's a question from Anuj uh, Shuringi who says, rising sea levels and reports say that 70% of Mumbai will be underwater due to climate change. Is it time to take drastic measures to avoid the inevitable climate change effects or try to delay it a bit? Uh, just to you know, quickly put some context to it. Now, this was an announcement made by the municipal commissioner of the BMC of Mumbai, Iqbal Chahal. He said 70% of South Mumbai uh, will be underwater because of rising sea levels by 2050. Uh, that was specifically the announcement that he made. And he said, we must take steps. It was um, no, you know, sort of clarity on what those steps are. Uh, you know, the BMC continues to build the coastal roads, though, nevertheless, uh, on the coast that they say will be underwater. Um, but what are these drastic measures that ought to be taken? And is it, and you know, like you said, air pollution doesn't stay in a city. Water pollution doesn't stay in the city. Whatever Mumbai is pumping into the ocean doesn't stay at Mumbai. It flows into the entire ocean. At what point is this? It, it's not just a solution that needs to come from Mumbai. It, it is a solution that needs to come from perhaps people all over the world. And Siddhartha, I'll take that question to you first, but what drastic measures should we be taking? Look, I mean, uh, the, the drastic measures will really differ depending on what, uh, you know, what geography we're looking at. So a drastic measure for India will be very different from a drastic measure that's needed at a global scale. So obviously climate change is a global issue and you want a drastic measure in the form of, you know, the world's biggest polluters and the world's historic polluters basically saying that they will stop using fossil fuels, uh, you know, uh, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, a, a, 
a very aggressive phase out of fossil fuels as soon as is possible. But then there's also for countries like India who have not historically you know polluted as much, but at the same time are impacted. And in the future, there's a you know grave room for India to actually pollute more. India needs from the West you know at least three things. You know investments, investments, and investments. We need a lot of it. We need we need to drastically fi- figure out ways to, for example, uh, you know. Uh, 80, about 80% of India's power is generated using coal. Is there a way for India to go out there and say that we're going to phase out all coal use in power by the year 2040? It's possible, but we need a lot of money for it. We need a lot of other things. And I think it's doable. And that would be a drastic measure at an India level kind of, uh, you know, in terms of in India policy. I'm, I'm eager to also listen from, uh, you know, hear from the other uh, panelists what they think an aggressive uh, set of actions could be for India and and you know at the global level. Actually, I'll just open this up to the entire panel to anyone who wants to respond to that. Uh, Christopher, do you want to take that? What would an aggressive set of measures be on the India level and the global level to mitigate uh, rising sea levels to begin? Sure. Um, I mean, maybe we could start with the fact that India, along with all countries around the world, are currently taking very very drastic measures um, around the impacts of COVID nineteen. Uh, they're spending huge amounts of money, um, but is the money being spent in ways which is aligned with the kind of clean energy transition? So a lot of ISD's work over the past two years has been promoting a fossil-free recovery. So um, we've tracked about uh, $336 billion uh, being committed to fossil fuel intensive sectors uh, right now. Uh, compared to only 275 billion for clean energy. So I think one thing that could be done is spend the money we're already spending, which is drastic, uh, but in ways that are better aligned with solving some of these long-term problems. Um, That I think brings me to the second point, which is really shifting government support away from fossil fuels and towards clean energy. And actually, I think this is an area where India can already show it's been playing a huge leadership role. So um, the size of fossil fuel subsidies has fallen very significantly since 2014. Um, and there's been big increases in expenditure on clean energy. Um, that's wavered a little in the past few years. Um, it's partly linked to fossil fuel prices globally as well. But I really think that there is a, a big case for India to think about what its next generation of support measures are going to be for clean energy. When we take a look at the policies that are in place right now, um, they're uh, actually fantastic policies, but they could have gotten us to where we are now, the one kind of 100 gigawatts which is installed. Um, but where's the the kind of the policy platform for getting to 450? Um, I think in this respect, state-owned enterprises are a fascinating topic. Um, they play such a huge role in, um, particularly in, in India's uh, energy makeup. Um, they've got really strong commitments to to social responsibility and making sure they're contributing towards uh, kind of um, you know just general social good as well as meeting their their kind of profit needs. Uh, and a kind of a really strong mandate for them to shift um, investments towards clean energy would be great as well. And FY2020. Um, we identified about 3.1 billion USD investment in fossil fuels, which was about 11 times as much as RE. So these are really big players. They've got a really strong sense of social responsibility. It'd be fantastic to see them kind of joining um, in and kind of making bold commitments for for energy transition. Uh, There are a couple of questions that have come in from audience members. One question uh, from an anonymous uh, audience member who says, in one of the sessions with school children where the child asked the Prime Minister Modi about climate change, he basically uh, roughly translated said that as people get older, they feel feel colder. And that's really what climate change is. 
What's your comment on that answer for uh, that the Prime Minister gave? And it's linked to a question that Daksh has asked, which he says, your views on ignorance by elected leaders towards climate change, completely dismissing it, not recognizing it as a major issue. Uh, politics does play a massive role, as we saw in the US, where on one hand you had Donald Trump in his term um, sort of rolling back decisions that were made on climate change. And now we have Joe Biden who's, who's sort of pushing the pedal going forward. So politics does you know, have an impact on, on what countries decide to do, whether um, you know whether elected representatives decide to deny or to acknowledge. Um, so two questions there, one on the um, Prime Minister of India and his statement, and the other on, you know, basically heads of state denying climate change. Uh, Christopher, do you want to take that? Um, I think that one of the things, well, A, yes, politics is, is incredibly important for change. So um, a lot of the work that we've done over the past 10 years in ISD has been focused on fossil fuel subsidy reform. And um, I think that we've seen that the problem really is as political as it is technical. Um, so uh, you can put together all the great reasons in the world as to why you should make change happen. But unless you have the buy-in and unless there's a kind of a, a national level of support for change, it's going to be very difficult to, to implement it. So I think a lot of what we see um, from politicians reflects what's happening um, in terms of the attitudes of national populations. It brings us back to some of the things we've already discussed about the importance of the media in terms of, you know, literacy, kind of giving people voices. So um, I do think that it's very political um, and we shouldn't be surprised uh, when uh, polit politicians uh, say what they need to say in order to speak to their constituencies. Um, with respect to the comment from Prime Minister Modi, I'm not familiar with it, but I think that he takes climate change very seriously from the numerous other uh, kind of uh, statements I've seen from him. So um, I would assume that it was um, not intended to be taken as um, uh, a kind of you know, uh, representative of his overall views. We have a question from Pavan. It says private sector produces 50% of the electricity in India. Given the fact that renewables can't be monopolized at the source, what could be the possible incentives for private sector to ensure we have sustainable production? And this is an important question. It's come up in the discussion once as well, about India perhaps reducing its dependency on coal uh, at the end of the day, even if India switches largely to electric vehicles, our electricity is coming from coal and that's not necessarily uh, the best way. What possible incentives could be offered to the private sector in order to incentivize more clean energy? Shikha Basin, do you want to answer that first? Sure, thank you. Um, and I think we need, to, we need to think about it from the point of view of the private sector, right? I mean, are they doing it because their stakeholders and their shareholders are demanding them to be clean companies? Uh, or are they doing it because actually electricity is just becoming more and more expensive for them? And so therefore, moving towards setting up their own renewable energy uh, plants that give power to them, uh, moving towards far more process engineering that is energy efficient in nature and therefore reduces the load of requirement themselves. Is that why they're doing it? Or is it because the customers of their products, um, you know, have suddenly grown up in India and are wanting and are demanding 
uh, sustainable products to come out of these, uh, you know, companies or these private sector entities that we're talking about. And I don't think it's going to be either or, you know, I think it is going to take a lot of technology co cooperation and collaboration and investments from a range of actors, right? Uh, and these are actors who are working in science labs right now, uh, trying to get these technologies ready. Um, you know, the, the green hydrogen uh, mission, the hydrogen mission that's been announced earlier this year, uh, that's supposed to, you know, there's so many eyes on it, looking to the kinds of investment that will be required for the companies and the private sector entities, which is really hard to abate, you know, the emissions are really hard to abate from these particular sectors. So we're looking to technologies that we know today, we're looking to technologies that we hope to be familiar with, uh, you know, in time to come. But I think it's again about communicating change, communicating climate change, and then demanding it. And I think this goes to air pollution, it goes to products and will impact the way your political leaders are responding to climate change as an issue as well as your private sector. Uh, that is very well said and there's uh, so much that can be done on the individual level, on the household level, on the building society level, on the community level as well, um, along with corporate and government and um, you know city and state. So uh, much, much to do before, uh, you know, we reach, um, you know, any sort of uh, conclusion. But I want to thank the panelists uh, this afternoon for giving us time. It's been a wonderful conversation. Uh, and I'm uh, really glad also uh, and grateful to News Laundry and uh, the Media Rumble for including our conversation on climate change. It's really important that climate change now becomes mainstream and be included in in all of our discussions. So I'm really glad that we had this opportunity to have this chat. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel.